Hello and welcome back to the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit podcast, where we discuss and translate the latest musculoskeletal research evidence to help you keep up to date and improve patient outcomes. My name is Luke Perriton. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. I'm a physiotherapy educator and early career researcher in the Department of Physiotherapy at Monash University. And this episode is a research-focused discussion between myself and fellow MMRU podcast co-hosts, Pat Valance and Associate Professor Peter Maliaris. And in our discussion, Peter, Pat and I open up a nice little can of worms about by talking about bias and confounding in research and the so-called non-specific treatment effects um, of interventions such as placebo effects and the Hawthorne effect and natural recovery. And we talk about why these are important to know about as a researcher and a clinician and why and how you can appreciate these concepts and how these concepts can even improve your clinical practice. So if you enjoy the conversation and the podcast itself, you can help us get this information out to more people by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts from and joining us on Twitter at MonashMRU to continue the conversation. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit podcast. I'm Luke Perriton and today we've got Pat Valance, physiotherapist and PhD student. G'day, Pat. Hi, Luke. And Peter Maliaris, physiotherapist and tendinopathy researcher. And we're all in the research group together. And we're going to have a conversation today about bias and confounding in research and some of the non-specific treatment effects that may be inherent in research and in clinical practice. And I'll start off. So we'll cut out all the chit chat at the beginning and all the banter and we'll get straight to business. So guys, or perhaps we'll start with Peter first. What's bias and confounding in general? What And what is bias and confounding in research? Yeah, so look, when, when you're doing an experiment, you're generally uh, testing whether, um, if we take, say, an intervention, you're testing whether an intervention has an effect on some sort of outcome. Um, and um, uh, so you want to know whether you know some said intervention has an effect on an outcome uh, and there are lots of things that can get in the way of that effect uh, and generally we call those um, we, we sort of you know define that as uh, you know bias and confounding so uh, bias is anything systematic that can be part of the re research methods that can influence the outcome um, so an example of bias is um, say if you have selection bias if you have a certain population where uh, they um, maybe will have some sort of impact on um, on the outcome um, important thing about bias is that it needs to be between groups so you might have um, um, you might have um, uh, selection bias that introduces uh, a difference between the groups and then they uh, they're for influence the outcome, uh, the between group comparison. Um, confounding is, um, and there's lots of different types of bias, biases that 
um, that can sort of you can have in these uh, in 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 the sort of research that you're doing, and it will depend on the research design. So trials are quite simple and straightforward. So trials, you've got selection bias, you've got um, uh, performance bias, you've got um, observation bias, um, you've got uh, sort of standard biases that we look for um, in trials and, and that we can deal with pretty easily. Um, well, I'll say easily, not not really that easily, but um, you know sort of what you're looking for, selection bias, performance bias, detection bias, um, attrition bias is another one in, in um, trials. Uh, and then confounding is... Um, where you have, um, you might have a relationship. So you've, you've, you know, you've shown that uh, there is um, a relationship between two variables. It could be a correlation, but actually it's explained by something else that you haven't measured. Uh, so there's a third factor there that explains your, your outcome. So, and there's real common examples of this. Um, for example, you know, physical activity, we know that you know, physical activity is really good for your health and it reduces heart disease, for example. Um, now, you might have someone in a study or you might look at people in a study and uh, you've got people in a study that um, are very physically active, but they also have other behaviours that are related to that. So, for example, they meditate a lot or they, uh, they're physically active um, and they also drink a lot of carrot juice. Now... Uh, consumption of carrot juice might be related to the outcome, which is reduced heart disease. But is that a causal relationship or is it just um, uh, confounded by the physical activity they do? Are there, yeah, are there examples in research where you want to control for bias and other examples where you want to just understand or perhaps measure bias? Yeah, look, I... I, I um, you're trying to reduce bias um, as much as possible, um, but you can't. You can. You can sometimes not eliminate it. So, for example, in physical therapy research, we often um, test exercise interventions, and with exercise interventions, it's not impossible, but it's hard to blind. Um, it's hard to blind participants. If you're comparing two exercise interventions, it's also hard to blind um, uh, the caregivers. Uh, so blinding will, and that will introduce observer and that will introduce performance bias. So uh, performance bias is when you know you you actually know that you're getting a treatment, and therefore you think you're going to do. You, you may that may reflect on your outcome. You may sort of, uh, you know, at the end rate that, you know, I got this treatment, you know, I, and that will reflect on you thinking you may be better. Um, so uh, performance bias is a, is a tricky one because it's hard to actually, with an exercise intervention, it's hard to, people sort of know they're getting a treatment and um, that could then reflect on, um, on their performance and the caregivers will know um, that they're getting a treatment. I'll give you an example. It's a really good trial by Kim Bennell um, in shoulders, looking at um, uh, looking at exercise versus placebo in shoulders, and she um, she managed to blind the participants, so they didn't know um, they didn't know whether they were getting the real treatment or the placebo treatment, which was ultrasound. 
you know, ultrasound that wasn't turned on, which I always find really fascinating because it basically tells you about the level of health literacy. If you've got an intervention that can be as benign and for us as much of a, you know, it's something we would probably, you know, scoff at and think, oh, you know, who, who does ultrasound these days? But you've got, um, you've managed to blind people successfully. Um, so people going into this trial randomised to, to basically ultrasound or um, exercise didn't know which one was actually the, the, the real treatment, um, which is really um, quite incredible when you think about it. But she managed to blind them, but she couldn't blind the caregivers. So the caregivers, they, uh, they knew uh, that uh, ultrasound was not the real treatment. So, so there's still a bit of performance bias. So you can't always, you can't always, you can't control for all the biases. There's, there's always going to be some, well, not always. You can with drug, well, I say um, you can, you, you can largely eliminate uh, a lot of the biases that are known when you're doing, say, a drug trial because um, you can very easily uh, blind everybody. Um, and blinding is probably considered, or lack of blinding, performance bias is probably considered one of the major biases, along with selection bias, in these trials. Um, Pete, uh, just a slight change of direction. Uh, why would a clinician, say, want to uh, understand bias and confounding? Uh, what benefit would that be to them? Yeah, look, um, as a clinician, uh, it is... Um, I think from an evidence-based medicine point of view, you want to know, you want to understand trials when you read them and you want to be able to say, uh, critique a trial and say, okay, there was, um, you know, should I really believe um, or take seriously uh, this trial because of the fact that they didn't uh, blind the observers or whatever the situation might be. So I think, I think understanding, um, but also I guess, um, it crosses over into internal validity, which is um, thinking about whether um, whether an observed relationship is uh, for the reasons that we think it is. So, is it the treatments we do? Because I think this this encapsulates the treatment, um, the the n equals one clinician scenario, where you're looking at, okay, so I've done a treatment to someone. Um, is is the improvement that I've seen because of the treatment that I've done, um, and you can then start to form some ideas about um, about uh, you know bias or um, other factors that might explain or threaten uh, that link between what you've done and the outcome that you're seeing. Uh, so that is probably where clinicians need to be thinking. So. Um, you know, you might think that you are really effective and you do um, a really good job with people. And the reality is you probably do uh, if, you, if you really think that. Uh, but is it for the reasons that you think, uh, you know, you, you're having a good effect? Is it the specific techniques and the way you do it? Or is it um, what we call non-specific effects, which are things like natural healing, regression to the mean, Hawthorne effects, placebo, um, all those factors. And we've touched on placebo through performance, you know, performance bias. Uh, but, you know, you can also have just the passage of time. People get better. 
um, regression to the mean where people um, people who are initially bad when they present because most of our patients come and see us when they're sort of you know not doing too well and then they can sort of start to do a bit better um, as these things are quite um, uh, sort of intermittent a lot of the pain conditions we see um, Hawthorne effects where you're observing someone in a trial and um, you know that um, uh, that basically um, influences the way they behave so all these effects can um, are really important for clinicians to think about because um, we all we always need to take the evidence and assess critique the bias but also critique our n equals one practice situation yeah and, and developing an understanding of these non-specific treatment effects as a clinician is important but how can it help you in your day-to-day -day practice to be a better clinician to understand um, effects such as as you mentioned the you know, say for example the placebo effect people getting better by natural um, pa passage of time the Hawthorne effect um, how can an understanding of that add to your um, your skills and your uh, your ability to help people as a clinician I think it uh, ultimately makes you more open-minded and it just makes you appreciate the uncertainty all around us so we are, we're so lacking in certainty in so many areas that we practice in that it's very important to be aware of that and to, um, you know, and to be open to uh, change, be open to uh, learning and be open to um, a different interpretations. Because, I mean, you know, there, there's, um, there's, um, as a clinician, you sort of always are surprised by um, sometimes how well people do, sometimes how poorly people do, and there's not really much. Um, there's not really much. Uh, sometimes it's hard to explain uh, those factors, and I think it's reassuring to understand the uncertainty um, and be open to um, be open to learning and um, be open to. Uh, different interpretations and I think that probably allows you to evolve as a clinician over time as you appreciate the evidence and and uh, and, and change with the evidence certainly that's been my experience anyway I think I am all you know I've always uh, evolved and changed in terms of what I what I what I have done um, uh, trying to um, not be too um, convinced that something is a is always going to work or will work because it has done for me the whole time. So not wedded to a technique or particularly an exercise approach, but uh, maybe there's other factors that we need to explore. I don't know. I think that's a probably a long-winded, um, convoluted answer. Um, but I, I'd, I'd invite Pat and uh, and Luke. What what do you guys think? How, how, how can how can how can knowing that we know not much or that maybe there are other mechanisms at play help us. I'm going to throw it. What's a game of football? I'm going to throw the ball to Pat <laughs> and ask that question. So currently, so you've just come, you just finished your um, shift today of work, and you've got you know we're developing research skills. You're doing your PhD. You're also working as a physio. So, do you think about uh, it as your transition from a new grad to a 
uh, you're developing expertise. Have you noticed that a change from being very certain about things to embracing uncertainty? And has that changed the way the way you practice? Um, I'd say absolutely. I think um, uh, Pete, you hit the nail on the head in that you um, you don't become so wedded to a particular technique. You're uh, I'd say you're less disappointed when something that has worked previously doesn't work for for someone else. Um, but very much you're open to to learning and uh, thinking critically. Uh, so you're, you're you're testing those those skills of um, versatility. You've you've tried one approach that's um, you've had success with previously that hasn't worked. So you try another and you, you try another if need be. Um, it makes a, some really good conversations with patients as well. Uh, say you're trying something in room or you've tr uh, tried an approach and it hasn't been successful uh, for them, um, you can have some very open and transparent conversations about um, where we're at uh, from an evidence base, uh, but also it's reassuring to them when it doesn't work, saying that, yes, we have these other options there that might work for you. Yeah, I agree in my experience as well, having um, learning more about research and the process and also teaching um, in physiotherapy education gives you the confidence to say that you don't know, you're not sure, and to work on it more of a process than having to always come up with an answer. So I think that's the reason why we're having this conversation today is not to, not to just um, treat bias and confounding and non-specific treatment effects as a, a problem, an awkward problem we can't solve, but to talk about it and have this conversation. I'm and I think it leads into a really good discussion around evidence-based practice and um, you know uh, really thinking about the evidence and presenting the evidence in a way where patients can make decisions about it um, and that is su such an important part of I think uh, clinical practice and such a difficult part as well getting the balance right between not sounding like you're an absolute numpty and you don't know anything uh, because you're saying, oh, you know, it doesn't, it, it, it just, you know, we don't have any evidence for anything. Just let's just, you know, we don't, I don't have anything to try. In practice, people come to you because you've got skills and you can do something with them. But then you've got this face with uncertain evidence and you've got to navigate those two uh, really contradictory sort of um, uh, extremes and, it's, uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. You've still got to convey confidence and that you can help them, but you've got to also be honest about the evidence. And uh, yeah, I find that challenging, but it's, 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 it's a very important part of uh, being honest with patients as Pat sort of alluded to. It's a sort of, you know, you have, you have a conversation about where the evidence is at and, and be clear with uncertainty. And patients generally respond to that very, very well. Well, I think we've just skimmed the surface of the topic. You know, it's something that we can come back to on this podcast again and many other conversations. And if you're listening to this and you want to you know, contribute, please reach out to us and obviously share the episode and but reply and tell us what you think and use our Twitter handle. So it's at Monash MRU. So until next time, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.